Welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today, today's just me and Hugo. And if you listen to our episode about the book, What Makes Sammy Run, this is going to be a, a lot like that. So if you like that, I think you'll like this. If, if you didn't, then you, know, you can probably just stop listening right now. Um, but as listeners who pay attention may know, um, I teach a class at Columbia Business School about the disruption of politics. They were either nice or foolish enough to let me put whatever I wanted on the syllabus. Um, and I chose books and a, a season of a TV show that I think really help explain why politicians do what they do. Because to me, it, the politics of disruption is understanding, okay, I've invented some new type of technology or way to do something. I want that to be legal and approved. Fine. Um, it's not then about being an expert in every policy detail around that issue, but understanding how the various political people who control your fate um, will react to something and why they'll react to that way and what it will take if you need to to change it. So to me, if you can understand the nature of why politicians do what they do, um, you're at least on the right track to being able to, to solve whatever your problem is. Um, and so uh, season three of The Wire is one of the things on the syllabus because I have always felt like it captures city politics uh, in a far better way than anything I had ever seen uh, on TV or, or in the movies. Um, and so uh, it's going on the list of stuff for my students to have to watch and um, felt like I shouldn't assign it if I'm not going to read and watch everything again, too. So I watched season three. Uh, Hugo watched season three. Um, for those of you wait, wait, this, how many times have you seen it now? Is this just the third time you've watched it straight through? Second. Second. So you watch it once way back in the day? Yeah, I don't. You know, so normally speaking, I, I watch something once or I read something once and I'm done. Right. Um, I know there are people who will rewatch things over and over again. That's that's to me feels counterproductive. I guess if you haven't seen The Wire and you intend to, there will be season three spoilers in this podcast. So you should probably uh, not listen. But again, season three was something like 15 years ago. So we're taking some liberties here. I, I think it's fair to say that, that um, yeah, if you haven't watched The Wire season three yet, you're probably never going to. But uh, Bradley, why don't we start with, I guess we should do a, a brief overview and I'll start a little bit and then and then you can you can sort of pick it up. But the it, it's built around basically this this uh, this commander in a um, in, in the Western District, uh, an area of Baltimore who has an incredible drug problem on his hands, and he uh, decides that he's going to create a part of the city that's most, a part of his neighborhood, three parts actually, that are mostly abandoned, and he's going to push all the drug activity into those three areas and away from the places where people live, and they're basically going to kind of let it ride there. Like, they're going to they're gonna let people uh, buy drugs, consume drugs, um, and they sort of make a deal with the drug dealers that they'll be hands off uh, as long as they stay within those three areas. And that's kind of the central, that's the central drama of the the season. Would you say that's right, Bradley? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but there's a whole political piece that sort of operates on the outside of that. And, and then there's also this really kind of amazing internal drama of the drug dealers as they sort of shift their business model um, that's also happening and, and an internal power struggle there too, which is a big piece of the story. So Bradley, first of all, why did you, um, why did you pick this show in particular? And I, I guess you sort of explained that, but, but the, the, the first thing I'd want to know since 
since students and younger people who, you know, when, when we watched it originally, like it was the, the big thing happening in television, it wasn't a very popular show, but the critics loved it. So it was something that a lot of people that we knew were watching. What's the character in this drama that speaks to you? Like there's, there's, there's McNulty, who's the kind of heroic white cop. There's Stringer Bell, who's the very charismatic drug dealer. There's Carsetti, who's this sort of white politician on the make in a black city. There's Omar, who's this like vengeful kind of warrior um, who's going around killing drug dealers. Is it one of these guys? Is it one of the others? Is because there's several more? Yeah, no, I mean, right. First of all, that's that's why this is, I would argue, the best show I've ever watched, number one. I think a lot of people would say that. It's not a unique point of view because um, there's so many characters that are interesting. And look, from a, you know, who are the characters that I enjoyed the most watching? It would be Stringer Bell. It would be Omar. Um, but the character that I remember the most and I thought was kind of relevant for my world the most was Tommy Carchetti, who is the city councilman with ambitions uh, beyond being on the city council. He wants to be mayor. Um, it's considered to be something of a crazy concept because he's a, a white city councilman in a heavily African-American city. And at least one of the subplots of the season is him kind of realizing he wants to be mayor and then all the steps that he takes to try to start running for mayor and becoming mayor and all the things that kind of influence his thinking and decisions and, and needs. And to me, it was a very realistic portrayal uh, of a politician, which is a heavily flawed human being with some good qualities and some bad qualities, but an overwhelming need for kind of affirmation and validation, um, you know, figuring out what it takes to fulfill and satisfy that need. Um, and in his case, it's what do I need to do to be able to potentially run for mayor? Right. And that dictates ultimately his actions. Um, and I felt like rather than most media will either kind of show politicians in a very binary way is either they're these saintly people who just want to change the world and they're striving and they're the hero of the story, or they're these, you know, evil, corrupt, terrible people who believe in nothing. And it's only about kind of getting for themselves at the expense of, of the public. You know, generally speaking, that's not true, right? Even in real life, you know, uh, Barack Obama is, you know, one of the best sort of politicians we've had, but still a human being. And there's someone who worked in Chicago politics when he was doing, I can tell you, he did some some shady shit. Um, and there are also people who are considered to be monsters and terrible, um, and that that very well may be true. Um, but that doesn't mean that no good came of their administration. I assume there'll be now protests if I say anything nice about Donald Trump on this podcast. But uh, I think Trump's the worst president we've ever had. I think he's a monster of a human being. But I like the deals that Israel reached with other Middle East countries to have a detente and peace. I think that's a good thing, at least as a Jew. Um, and I think the Trump administration helped make that happen. That's a positive, right? So something good came of it. Obviously, he did a lot more harm to the world than good. Um, but, you know, point is, what I liked about season three of The Wire and the portrayal of Tommy Carchetti is he's a real person. Right. And it really it gets that in a way that most TV shows and movies either don't understand it or more likely are just too lazy to, to put in the work to, to explain that. I will say this, though, the 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 sort of political consultant sort of subdrama of, yeah. of the Marchetti story, I find to be like it's weird because, you know, apparently they like called in, you know, uh, there was like some for this season, there was some. Uh, Baltimore Sun, former colleague of the show creator, David Simon, they called in to sort of upgrade the kind of political um, content. And 
it's, it's some of it felt kind of false to me or, or, yeah. or I, the word and some previous discussion was kind of shallow. This kind of like, like, um, would you talk about that part again? It, particularly yeah. when you see you're a political consultant, you see political consultants portrayed on screen. Um, it's, it's gotta always be a little, a little maddening. Yeah. Um, so I thought some of the, some of the portrayal of the political consultant was was accurate and good, and, and some fell a little short. And, and you know, in the notes that I sent to you after watching the season, you know, to me that that was the real misstep. So the the stuff that was we're also, but but the other thing is the political consultant in question is like an extremely attractive woman, which uh, you know I understand why that made sense for their show, but that that drove some of the relationship there. And I think generally speaking, that's not you know not the motivating factor in why people hire or work with certain political consultants is their, their physical appearance. Um, so that was a little bit unusual. But look, the 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 thought, the part about it to me that, that even with the consultant that resonated well is this notion of person X wants to be something. They want to be governor, senator, president, mayor, whatever it is. And they're basically going to put themselves in the hands of someone else who they believe can get them to where they want it, right? And that person then tells them to do all kinds of things. And they may question some of it, but generally speaking, they follow the path um, because their ambition and their need for validation and affirmation that would come from holding, winning this office and holding this job outweighs anything else. So the fact that Carcetti, uh, you know, is basically following her advice and she's telling him how he needs to be at a city council hearing or when he needs to step up and when he needs to step back. Um, you know, all, all of that to me rang very true um, because ultimately it's the achievement of the win and the validation it brings that is far more important than any specific issue, item, policy or anything else. The part that I thought was cringy, as, as my son would say, um, was they were they had one scene where I think it was maybe focus groups or something where it was very much like about spin and the narrative and you've got to, you know, be different if you want to win. To me, that was all very shallow, kind of stereotypical but false advice. And by the way, maybe the kind of advice that like bad political consultants give, um, I would argue very strongly and have argued this publicly many times that um, you got to let a candidate be who they are. Now, who they are might not be good enough to win an election. Uh, but when you try to make someone something they're not, the voters can sniff that out. I mean, the reason Hillary Clinton lost in 2008 and 2016 is no one felt totally comfortable with who she really was because she was never comfortable with who she was. It wasn't, wait, I thought it was Russian interference that defeated her in 2016. I mean, that might have been part of it. But at the end of the day, and this was this was true for Al Gore, this was true for John Kerry. Um, I think this sort of became part of the, the case with, with Mitt Romney. So, it's, you know, it's, it's both parties, um, but it is people who try to be something they're not, whether it was Al Gore being advised by Naomi Wolf that he needs to be more alpha and wear less beige, or John Kerry deciding to announce that he was going to start hunting varmint to connect with voters in Ohio, which just looked fucking absurd, right? Or Hillary wearing a, a baseball hat that was half Mets, half Yankees, which was meant to be a joke, but instead just was very, very telling. Yeah, the one thing um, New Yorker would ever do. Yeah, and, and so on. So I think Political consultants who give that that kind of advice that you should be something you're not are terrible political consultants. So that scene in the, in, in the season was a real misstep. But otherwise, the basic notion of candidate saying, I desire this above all else and will put this ahead of everything else. To me, that was um, that, that rang true. So there's a scene uh, 
where uh, Garchetti is is Garchetti is is uh, sort of screwing up in in the in a hearing. You know, he's sort of like getting proud of himself for having some sort of intellectual point that um, no one is actually all that impressed by. And he kind of looks out into the the mostly empty like you know hearing room, and his consultant is there, this very attractive woman. Um, and she sort of shakes her head and gets up and walks out, you know? Um, it, it, I mean, it was, it was, it's obviously, look, it's a, it's a television show, but, but are there, is there gamesmanship that happens between a consultant and a, and a politician? Yeah, tons of it, because the, the, the dynamic in many ways is very skewed where, and, and this, this season of The Wire, this really, really fell into this or, or, or agreed with this, which is, the consultant becomes this all-knowing Svengali who has done it before and seen everything and done everything and knows how to get you to the promised land if you only listen to everything they say, right? And especially for younger candidates who are, you know, not running for re-election, but maybe they're running for the first time for some kind of big office or something like that, and they haven't been kind of in the big time of politics until now, um, that is very much... I think the responsibility of the consultant feels in a way to sort of portray that and behave in that way. And that's kind of the trope that everyone falls into. So let's talk about the um, uh, the police aspect of it. And then we obviously want to talk about the drug dealer aspect, too. But one thing that struck me, this show is 15 years old, takes place in Baltimore, where there have obviously been a few pretty horrible things to happen with the police over the last couple of years since the show was made. Um, the cops are portrayed in, I think, an overwhelmingly positive light. I mean, they, they do all kinds of questionable things. They have their own sort of moral code that doesn't always correspond to the laws and that kind of thing. But generally, they are like this, like almost noble class. Did that strike you as, as kind of off or, or, or uh, sort of out of step with the way, um, I mean, certainly the way we've been talking about, like the nature of politicians. Yeah. Cops aren't some special breed of human. Although there is, there is a shooting on this on the sea during the season of a by a white cop of a of a black man. Interestingly, uh, though, it's another cop. <laughs> it's another cop. Yeah, that that does have you know that was somewhat reminiscent of some of the things that we're dealing with as a society right now. Yeah, it was a much more positive portrayal of the police, in part because it's a TV show that over five seasons is focusing on a handful of police officers, and if you. If they're evil and you hate them, you're not going to want to watch them for five seasons. Or- What's interesting is how few of them, though, are 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 bad eggs at all, right? Like there's like that one – I can't remember his name right now, but the one sort of heavy sort of like – I mean they, they present a lot of like lazy guys. Like there's the yeah. one guy reading the porn magazines um, while he's sort of guarding the electric – electronic equipment or whatever and he's just like he's almost ridiculous like as he's like staring at a porn magazine like he's never seen one before um but the the uh the the characters uh i mean the there's you know there's there's probably 20 sort of significant characters as police officers and they're pretty much all like these people of integrity yeah i mean they're flawed right so mcnulty and, and greggs who are sort of the the two lead detectives on the show, you know, they do show all the kind of mistakes they make in their personal life, the the, the, the drinking, the fighting with the, you know, with their spouse or ex-spouse or partner or whatever it is. Um, although a lot of that is chalked up to just pressures of being police, right? Pressures um, of being police, but pressures of being a good cop, right? 
So because McNulty cares so much and he's and he's looking for answers in his work and he's like trying to trying to solve like the problems of the world. And, and I mean, I, I think I mean, the McNulty character is so appealing to watch. And yet if you stand back, you're like, this is basically like a superhero. This guy gets to do whatever he wants. He has sex all the time. He's like he's 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 getting drunk. He, but he's still like this fantastic cop who's like an intuitive genius who's like playing the the drug dealers off against each other. Like, well, it, but he's also at the same time like someone who's lost his family. Uh, can, you know, can't find a home within the Baltimore Police Department because nobody wants to work with him. Um, you know, obviously, is really insecure about his place in the world because. Uh, he ends up dating the same political self we were just talking about, and, and she makes him feel like an idiot all the time. Um, so the, the show at least tries to balance it out by saying, here are all the bad parts of his life. But you're right. In terms of his actual police work, it is seen as just an unmitigated kind of brilliance and, and good. But you know what? And, and I, I, think, <laughs> I think that's true of most police officers, right? There's unquestionably systemic racism in societies, unquestionably systemic racism in the police departments. Um, and there are unquestionably outcomes that are different and worse towards people of color than white people by police departments. That's all true. But to then say that every cop is a bad person or a racist, like that just is people who've never met a police officer, right? You know, these are people who are doing a really hard, really dangerous job and the vast majority of them do it well and do it uh, do it honorably, right? And so I don't think the show is that far off because I would say that, that in my experience, having worked in, in government a lot and therefore with police departments, um, that that's consistent with it. So, you know, they may, they're, they're human beings with all kinds of flaws, um, but the notion that they're all just sort of pure evil. Uh, now, some clearly, and, and we keep seeing evidence, we saw the, the shooting in Chicago yesterday in Minnesota a few days earlier. So there's there's real problems, don't get, don't get me wrong. But I don't know, I, I, didn't, I didn't have a problem, maybe I'm just a middle-aged white guy, so I don't get it, but like, I didn't have a problem with the way that the cops were portrayed in a positive manner. I just don't see, you know, the Freddie Gray thing that happens in Baltimore in real life. You don't see how that happens the way the police department is depicted in The Wire. You just don't see it. You know, like, like, you know, the, the police killed someone in custody and, and, and by doing something that was basically part, appeared to be part of their way they dealt with problems. Um, and that just doesn't seem. Well, but you, yes or no. I mean, again, I think the part of the problem is the show works on one level and then they try to check a bunch of boxes on a more superficial level and they check them, but it doesn't feel as real. So like, there are examples of police brutality on season three. There are they talk a lot about beating the shit out of the drug dealers, like physically, right? So it's it's not that they're hiding from that. It's that what comes across emotionally is, oh, these are ultimately good guys, even if they do some bad things, right? Right. right. Um, but, but they like they do check every box. It just probably does doesn't convey in the same way. And then the the drug dealers themselves have a certain kind of nobility, also, you know. Yeah, um, I mean, Singerbell is, I think, a hero of the show. Yeah, and and it, it's funny how the 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 it, when he's murdered at the end. I mean, it is. It's still. I mean, I knew it was coming because I'd seen it before, and yet it's still like it's still horrible. <laughs> you know. Oh, and yeah, it's it's surprised. I was surprised, even though I knew it was about to happen. Um, although I love the fact that the show, in some ways, is so unemotional 
and ruthless, right? And that they'll just kill off a character if that's what makes sense for the plot at that point. Um, what's, what's the movie yeah. To Live and Die in L.A. where they kill the main character, the cop, like halfway through the movie? You just can't believe it. <laughs> like, yeah. But the that's unfortunately Idris Elba went on. He was the only person on that show that became a huge star. Yeah, right. True. He's James, literally James Bond, right? Or he's playing James Bond. Like, you know, no one else really became that successful. I was just looking up a bunch of the actors because there's so many good performances in it and so many sort of compelling characters. And yeah. So how, how did this guy not get another big shot? You know, like, it was interesting. So I went to for season five of The Wire. Somehow I finagled an invitation to the premiere and the and the party afterwards um and normally i don't care about this stuff but i was such a wire fan that, that i was excited about it and, and there were like a few things that i noticed which was one you know the cast is massive so the party like half the people at the party were the cast because it was right. like over five seasons the hundred different actors who had some sort of role that was relevant over the course of the the show um so that's number one number two you know, they generally were not that famous because after I had a few drinks in me, um, I was at the urinal and I said, and I'm embarrassed by saying this, but I, I said, holy shit, I'm taking a leak next to Sabatka, who was this, one of the stars of season two on the union. The actor, I think, was not amused that I was calling him by his character's name. Yeah, I don't think they like that. The people who are at the party are supposed to know better than that. Um, they also all looked a lot better in real life than they did on the show. Yeah, yeah, they, they dirtied them up, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so the the... There are two narrative pieces that I didn't like, and I want to get your read on them. If you thought, if they, if they, how they, how they struck you. One of them is I don't understand why Stringer Bell tells Avon that he killed his nephew, or that he arranged to have him killed. I don't get that. Why would he do that? You don't think it's because at some level Stringer still felt that he and Avon were ultimately connected and bonded and partners. And Avon, obviously, in having Stringer killed, did not see it the same way. Um, and it was almost that Stringer was a, a little, for all of his worldliness, there was a subplot thing. he's also kind of naive, right? And he was naive in the way that he dealt with, like, politics and real estate. Right. But he was also naive in the way he dealt with Avon. Yeah, it's just funny, like, where you have I mean, I guess that is the ultimate kind of like like where the character's fatal flaw is that he he misjudges the relationship any any and ultimately I guess that's what makes him heroic, right? Is that because he does have real trust in his heart because he tells him the truth. Um, and yeah. If uh, and that and it costs him his life eventually. The okay, so the so the other piece of it that come on, but do you think that I don't think he lost his life because he killed D'Angelo Barksdale. I think he lost his life because he was a threat to Avon and a threat to not just to Avon's power, but to Avon's kind of emotional well-being because it made him feel stupid and and, and less important. Yeah, although he comes around, right? I mean, basically he comes around to the the stringer way sort of in the end. He's like, We gotta stop doing this, you know. Um well, but it almost it's easier to become stringer after he kills stringer. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. So let me, the other piece of it, I don't like the, I, I, I had to look up the guy's name. I can't remember the, the, you know, the bow tie guy who comes down out of nowhere, basically. Kind of a, the nation of Islam type. Yeah. You, you never even heard of him. And then he has to sort of explain his story, which doesn't quite add up. And then the, the, the sort of weird deal he makes with, with Omar, like, why does Omar need him to go after Stringer? You know what I mean? Like, like, Omar can go after anybody um, and he needs to make a partnership with this guy who beats up his, his boy. Like I, it's like it, that, that whole like piece of it feels like 
like they just spitballed it out, but it doesn't it doesn't feel like like important to the story. No, I, it was confusing and probably unnecessary. Um, I think that they were like, hey, it'd be interesting to have sort of a nation of Islam subplot. And look, having having worked and lived and done politics in Chicago, you know, that that exists, right? That's part of the world there, right? Farrakhan lives in Chicago and, you know, it's not a huge part of the political community, the African-American community, but it, it is a it, it does exist. And, you know, I've dealt with it. Um, so so I think that they wanted to work it in because they thought it'd be interesting. But I agree with you. It doesn't really work. So you worked in, in Philadelphia. You got your start with, with Ed Rendell. Yeah. Philly and Baltimore. How similar are they? How many? How much of the show were you like? Oh yeah, this 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 is something I've seen, something I've like you know I know about. Are, are they pretty close? Are they? Are they? Uh, I mean, they're obviously close geographically, but um, no. I mean, yes, yes and no. And look, I was a in college and b um, working in like a, a subset of the mayor's office where I wasn't really interacting with the Philadelphia PD or, or, or anything like that. You know, so it was a much more narrow experience than, than my other stays in government. Um, you know, similar in the sense that both cities that were incredibly hit hard and hollowed out by the loss of manufacturing, um, hit really hard by either the drug trade, the war on drugs, or both. Um, a city that had significant racial tension. Um, and, you know, I think that so from, from all of those ways, they're kind of similar. Where they're different is Philadelphia kind of felt like it was still clinging on to the big time. You know, I think when I lived there, it was fourth biggest city in the country. It was bigger than Houston at the time. Um, and, and they were trying to basically stay in the top tier, right? Whereas Baltimore, I don't know that ever was in the top tier, thought of themselves in the top tier. And certainly after kind of the flight of manufacturing from the U.S. in the second half of the 20th century, you know, was didn't even, you know, pretend to be, you know, at that level. So on, on, in some ways they were fighting in different weight classes, but in some ways they were similar. Right. And what... Why do you think, I mean, one, one of the things that occurs to me watching this show is like, why does anybody want to be in charge of Baltimore? You know what I mean? Like, it just looks like a... Oh, uh, sure, but you want to be in charge because you, you want all the trappings that come with it. You The seduction of power, the validation, the attention. The... Look, I remember, and I felt like I was beat up on Chuck Schumer, but when, when he was in like, it was like 2005, he was Senator... Um, and it was the Spitzer race for governor, and Chuck thought about primarying Spitzer with an open seat, and Chuck, I think, w- would have won, right? Um, and I remember talking to this before we kind of fell out, and he called me when I was in Chicago and said, okay, you work for me, you're, you're running the state, you know, how should I think about these two things? And, you know, the initial notion of being governor was very seductive because, you know, Chuck, up until now, when he sent a majority leader, every day had to compete for attention, right? Had to come up with inventive things every Sunday, every day to get the affirmation and validation that he needed. When you're governor, you don't have to do that. There's a bunch of people whose only job is to cover you, write about you, talk about you. Um, on the flip side, they're mainly criticizing you because you have real responsibilities, right? A U.S. senator has basically no responsibility. They vote once in a while, and that's about it. Um, whereas the governor's 
has a massive amount of responsibility every day and tons of things go wrong every single day, even if they're a really good governor. So, you know, my conclusion to him was like, I ultimately don't think you would like this because while you would like the added attention, I don't think you would like all the negativity that comes with it. And I think he made the right choice clearly by staying in Congress. But, you know, even if a job is really hard, like think about people running for mayor right now. Think about us running Andrew Yang's campaign right now. You know how hard the next mayor's job is going to be with, you know, the, the budget deficits, with the loss of 700,000 jobs in New York City because of COVID. And those are only jobs that we know about, not even off the books jobs. Um, with the, the, the diminution of the tax base, all these things, it's going to be an incredibly hard job. But, you know, I think for people running, uh, it's an amazing opportunity to try to help and fix and save the city that they love. And if they win, they're really heroes, right? And if they, if they don't, if they fail, then they're not. But, you know, they're all willing to take that back. Yeah, I guess the thing that really comes across in the show and the reason I asked the question, I guess I totally understand all that, obviously, but it's just like the situation in Baltimore just seems so hopeless, right? You look at those neighborhoods and, and there's, I think one of the real strengths of the show is the way they show that kind of juxtaposition, like the you know city hall still looks amazing. They still have these beautiful kind of municipal sort of facilities, right? And then you see what's underneath it is like just acres and acres of like blasted out neighborhoods, you know? Um, yep. And people living on the uh, on the margins and you see and you're like, wow, these things don't add up like this doesn't make for a livable human environment. You know, um, it's it's it, well, that that was Colvin's whole point in in kind of legalize in Amsterdam and, and legalizing the drug trade was I need to make enough of my district livable. So I'll make part of it hell so that the rest of the people are OK. And which is kind of what happens actually on a municipal level right <laughs> like 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 in new york city like you know i mean w when when i was growing up in in manhattan you know my neighborhood wasn't full of crime you know i mean there was some uh, more than there is today but you know they kept the crime in certain neighborhoods and uh that actually happens you know it's not just a crazy yeah, i'm not i'm not sure about that but really? uh, yeah I don't, I don't think they keep the look there's an obvious correlation between wealth, between race, wealth, and crime, right? You know, and so growing up, you know, if you grew up in the Upper West Side, um, even though it was probably a lot more dangerous back then than it has been, you know, the last 20 years, um, cl clearly there's a reason for that. But, you know, at least what I saw under Bloomberg, and I understand that there's a lot of critics of Bloomberg's policing policies, um, they were really very heavily focused on crime in the higher crime areas, right? That's what CompStat's all about. Um, and that's what they were focused on. Now, they might have been too aggressive, and that may be the legacy of stop and frisk, but I don't think there was a, hey, we'll tolerate it here so it doesn't happen there. No, no, I, I, don't, I don't think it's, I mean, I think there probably are people who think that, but I, I don't think that's the dominant point of view. I, I mean, I think it's too cynical, but, I, but it is a true fact that there are, that there are huge I mean, if 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 there's a if there is a crime, even a fairly small crime committed in the neighborhood I live in right now, there is a pretty significant police response. And quickly, even now, um, that is not true for for a lot of other neighborhoods. Um, and so so it does have the effect of what you see in. in, in maybe I'm not, I'm not sure the stats bear that out, but but maybe. Yeah. I mean, you could not have a you could not have people shooting up in a in, in my neighborhood um, and living in a, an abandoned house, you know, um, and there you know, there are some, I mean, empty properties, at least. But anyway, I, it's 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 not what the what the show's about. But I do think there's a larger point they're making, which is that there is something to the urban condition generally 
um, that that is um, uh, that I think they illuminate through what you know through what Bunny Colvin does. Yeah, I want to just end with one thing because you, in in the in the notes you sent me, you, and this is going to require a little bit of explanation by you about the plot, but I think it's worth it. Um, you talk about Royce, who's the police chief. Um, Royce is the mayor. Uh, okay, Royce is the mayor. You're right, you're right, right. But you say at the beginning, you say Royce has an opportunity to flip the script, um, which is something only really good pals can do. Explain how what he does, why that's like a political skill or a, a, a good political move. And I, I'd love if you can think of like ways, you know, times that you've been involved where that's been successfully um, sort of pulled off. So um, look, so the, the plot here is, as Hugo said at the beginning of the episode, um, crime in the Western District was effectively pushed to one one small area where drug dealing was was tolerated and, and not and the laws against it were not enforced um, in return for it being peaceful and for the drug trade not happening in other parts of the of, of, of the district. Um, that is kind of a not publicly known fact for most of the season. And then it starts to become known publicly um, as the season goes on. And the mayor uh, learns about it. And obviously his first reaction is like, I can't believe that my police commander or one of them just legalized drugs. We can't do that. But then, you know, he also said, look, there's a 14% drop in crime in this in this district now because we've pushed all the drug deal into one area and kind of cut a deal with the drug dealers that if you don't behave violently, we won't arrest you. And so as a result, a lot of crime went down. And I think Royce for a second at least said, rather than just immediately declining it, shutting it down, all of that, you know, maybe this is an opportunity um, to say, hey, this is the better way to deal with this problem situation. My job is to keep people in the city safe. I can't shut down the drug trade no matter what we do. It's an unwinnable war. So therefore, uh, we ought to just contain it and legalize it, which, by the way, is a movement that has obviously gotten a tremendous amount of support since then because marijuana has effectively been legalized since then. It's just one drug, um, but it's at least emblematic of, of that mindset. But where I thought it was interesting is, one, you know, that's what a good politician does, right, which is that they see opportunities instead of just immediately saying, here will be the initial reaction uh, by the media on Twitter, by the different advocates. They kind of try to think around the corner a little bit and say, OK, what could this be if I handle it right, if I take this risk? Um, and number two, to the point I made earlier, although Royce is seen as a very cynical kind of corrupt politician, um, you know, he also wants to protect the people of his city, right? He's not all bad, just like he's not all good. And he both politically saw an opportunity, but he also saw like, hey, this is my job. And it made this this idea, even though it's kind of crazy, maybe having some real benefits to it. Um, and so I'm not going to dismiss it out of hand. And, you know, I admired that. Let me ask you one final thing, because this came up earlier in, in a podcast we did earlier this week, but uh, we were talking about, uh, you know, television shows and movies that, that uh illuminate kind of business practices and, and, and how business is conducted. So we've talked a lot about politics uh, in the last half hour or so. What, do, what does The Wire tell us about business that you find interesting or that you probably talk to your students about? It, it is, you know, ultimately the reason why I signed it is because of the portrayal of Parchetti and therefore the ability to understand what motivates politicians and political decisions and how businesses um Need, if they understand that, it is far easier to then deal with regulation. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of coming at it, at it in, a, in a backhanded way, I guess. Um, but at the same time, you know, what, what was interesting is, you know, Stringer Bell was a, a drug dealer, a drug kingpin, 
but in many ways, you know, look at the world in the same way that the CEO of Fortune 500 companies do, right? And and had the same kinds of problems and same considerations and made the same decisions. And at the very, you know, on some level, uh, all business is kind of the same, right? The goal is to you know, have more profit than loss. The goal is to sort of deal with the headaches and minimize them as much as possible. The goal is to sort of be able to see what's coming next and 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 get out ahead of it. Um, and that's true if you're Apple or Amazon or Facebook, and it was true if you're Stringer Bell. So what's his, what does he do wrong then? Because obviously, if you're the CEO of a company and you screw up, you tend not to wind up dead, as he did. But um, if 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 his if his murder at the end of the season can just be thought of as sort of the end of his career, um, which it is also, um, what what's the what did he do wrong? Probably wrong. It would be if the corporate equivalent of you know two people towards the top of a company having a power struggle and they play internal politics and one wins and one loses and the board fires one of them, right? Uh, except in this case, you know, Stringer Bell got shot. Um, so uh, you know, he. I think what he did wrong when we talked about earlier was was that he was a little naive, right? And that he felt like he. Uh, his bond with Avon was so strong that as long as he was doing things for what he thought were the right reasons, it could withstand anything. And that turned out to not be the case, right? And once he proved to be A, threatening and B, uh, you know, sanctioned the killing of Avon's nephew in jail, um, that was enough to give Avon the motivation and, and rationalization to have Stringer kill. Um, and so, you know, he, he just made a fundamental mistake. But, you know, those are, I mean, it's, it's a much more interesting and, and tragic and higher stakes than, you know, a corporate boardroom fight. But, you know, at the same time, people make mistakes like that in the corporate world all the time. All right. I think we've, uh, I think we've, 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 I think we now may be longer than a single episode of the show. No, so. no not yet. They, no, we're only at 40 minutes. So we're, we're good. But um, all right. I think that this is fun and uh, we'll, we'll be back. What's the next one we're going to do after this? What's, what's Augustus by John Williams. So if you want to, if you want to get ahead, if, if you've read What Makes Sammy Run and watch season three of The Wire, uh, the next book is Augustus by John. All right. Thanks, man. All right. See you guys.